1: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
2: Not every certain person left God's promised land to go into a land of idolatry but the problem was that this certain man's response he did this and it made it all the worse because of the meaning of his name because his name is my god is king or Elimelech, and his response to the problem of the famine brought dishonor to god it it annulled what his name meant because as he walked out of the land of Israel and he walked away from the Jewish people and he left the land and he came into the land of Moab, everybody saw him do that. They saw The Jewish people saw the certain man leave, the Moabites saw him come in, and they saw this man and then they said, who's that? He said, that's the man whose name is my God is king. And the Moabites saw that. Who, what's your name? My name is my God is king. Really? So it shows by his decision that he didn't really believe that, that he didn't really trust God to provide him with food in God's land. And they saw this certain man whose name was, my God is king, and he shows by his decision, he doesn't really believe that God was strong enough or king enough to care for him in the land. And so when verse 2 tells us that the man's name was, my God is king, that's a problem. And when we call ourselves Christians and we're saying, my God is Christ, or my God is the Lord Jesus Christ, and people watch our lives to see if we really do believe, do we really show and believe that God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And people are watching us to see if we really believe that. And the Lord Jesus Christ is God. We believe he's going to take care of us, and that I don't have to compromise to take care of myself. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is God. I don't have to defend my. I don't have to fight. I don't have to take vengeance because he's God. And both the saved and the lost are watching us carefully, and they're seeing if our name matches our decisions in life. Like they looked at Elimelech, and they asked the question, is his his decisions matching his name? And that's why the first statement in verse 2 is so important. The name of this man who forsook the people of God, who forsook the country of God because of a famine, his name is my God is king. So when verse 1 says that he left Bethlehem, Judah, that emphasizes how the man with the name of my God is king was a discouragement. He was discouraging to the people of God who were left in the land. And at the end of verse 2, where it says, and they came into the country of Moab, that shows how this man with the name of my God as king brought dishonor to God among the lost Moabites who needed God. And as both the ones left in Israel and the people of Moab saw this man whose name was my God is king, they all said, I guess he really doesn't believe this God is king. He must not believe it. And the sad fact is that this is the history in the book of Ruth of a certain man whose name was my God is king because verse 3 starts out with his death. Now in verse 3, the spotlight now of our history switches, switches from Elimelech to Elimelech's wife, Naomi. And we read in verse three, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now we see in this verse a report of what happened. We read, Elimelech has died. And we find ourselves, when our time machine were there, we're standing with Naomi. And we're standing in front of an open grave with her two sons. It's the grave that's been dug for their father and their father is in the grave and they're all looking down and we're looking down too on the body of Elimelech before they cover it with dirt. And they're all saying, we hear him saying goodbye and the pain is unbearable, especially for Naomi. Elimelech is gone. He's not coming back. That's the message. Job was a man who just, he gave a lot of thought to death. He was thinking a lot about death, Job was. And he described death Several times with the, with with one theme, and it's an idea that he he kept saying this, and he said it in, in Job sixteen twenty two. He said, "When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return." So he says, "Thought I'm going to go to a place I'm not coming back," and in Job ten twenty one he he said. Before I go whence I shall not return. See, he says, I shall not return. And the Job 7, 9 through 10, as a cloud is consumed and vanisheth away, so he that goeth down to the grave shall, shall not come back, he shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. And King David, speaking of the death of his newborn son, said in 2 Samuel 12:23 but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. See, Job, David, same thing, not return. And David's words, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me, is brought out by one word in our passage here in Ruth 1.3, and that's the word left. That's his left. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. It's an awful feeling. It's an awful feeling after a person walks out of a hospital room or walks out of a bedroom and a loved one has just died. It's awful. It's a feeling that I'm left. It's a believer. The believer can say of a believer with a measure of joy, a measure of sweet joy. I remember so much when Mike Johnson uh, spoke about his reaction to the death of his sister, Joy, and then of his, his brother, Larry. But he, but he spoke about it. He says, yes. You could say, "I know that he or she is in a better place now, and it's true. And the believer can say to the believer, "I know that he or she is all right now, he's healed, and it's true. but the, and the believer can say, but the believer can also says with King David about he says he says, "I shall go to him, and that's true. But all the comfort and all the joy of those statements don't take away from the rest of 2 Samuel 12, 23. He shall not return to me, and which is what Job has been talking about. He says, I shall go the way whence I shall not return, and he shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. All the comfort, all the joy of all those statements of what happened to the believer who died, don't take away from the four words about Naomi, and she was left. And those four words in verse verse 3, and she was left. And as we stand there next to her, we feel the emptiness of it all. And we feel the hollow feeling in the stomach like when you've lost your most valuable possession on earth. And it's a terrible feeling. And the strongest part of Tim LaHaye's book in his series about the tribulation was the title, Left Behind. And because those two words, they're terrorizing, left behind. And the terrorizing feeling is what we feel when we read these four words. In verse three, she was left. In verse three, after the word left, there's a terror, you know, you can, put, you can fill in a blank there. It's not good. You can fill in a blank and you could say, you could, you could say, Really, as we get into verse 3, we can't help but enter it yet. She was left, and we get the feeling of verse 3, and it actually comes out this feeling of emptiness and fear, and we fill in a blank, and we put in words like she was left behind, and she was left alone, and she was left without a husband, and she was left without the love of her life, and she was left without her best friend, and we don't just read verse 3 and let it go. We fill in the blank in our minds. And we say, and Melek. Naomi's husband died, and she was left without a husband to run to, be embraced by, snuggle up to in the hard times of life, and they had him. And in verse 3, you can say, and Elimelech, hus- Naomi's husband died, and she was left without a husband to pray with, to go to God together with. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left without her best friend to talk to, to confide in. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with never hearing his familiar voice saying, I love you. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left without ever again being able to kiss him and tell him, I love you. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left alone without ever being able to turn to anyone and point to Elimelech and say those words that made her so happy, that's my husband, my husband. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left without a husband to protect her. She's a Jewess in a country that hates the Jews. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she's left without a provider, and she's reduced to poverty. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she's left with no hope for her future, which is coming out. So it's terrible, and we feel it in verse 3. And those words, those words, and she was left they're not the end of the sentence because it goes on to say in in verse 3, it says, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. So there's four more words in the verse which are and her two sons. And as terrible as those first four words are in verse 3 that she was left, the verse goes on to say and her two sons. So with those words, we feel how Naomi felt that, that this was not a time for her to sink into despair and self-pity. Naomi the, Naomi, the wife, was not needed anymore. But Naomi, the mother, was more than ever needed now. And those four words in verse, verse 3, where it says, and her two sons, we feel how the mother, Naomi, kicks into gear. For who? For her two sons. Her two sons, she doesn't have the luxury of sinking down to grieving for the rest of her life. Naomi the mother is now needed. Naomi the mother was needed by her two sons when they were babies, and now Naomi the mother is needed more than ever by her two sons. And Naomi the mother, she's got to push aside her personal feelings of great loss, and she's got to be strong for her two sons. Naomi, the wife, she lost her husband. Naomi, the mother, she hasn't lost her two sons. And they need her to be strong. And Naomi, the mother, looks at her two sons, and she longs, you know, like any mother would, for her to you know, make me a grandmother. <laughs> and Naomi, the mother, looks at her two sons, and she wants them to get married, have babies. My cousin Nancy uh, was married to Al, Temple Weiss, in the, in the 60s, before we were married. And about 40 years afterward, I remember what a sad day it was for my cousin Nancy when Al died. And the burial was so painful. It was painfully sad. I can't get it out of my mind. I want to forget it, but I don't want to forget it. And the burial day, I remember it was a cloudy day, and I'll never forget the day. We all stood around the grave, looked down on that white coffin with that big, large, white star of David. And it was, just, it was, it was so painful as we each took the shovel of dirt and could just feel the dirt I mean, you feel, feel the, the dirt as it fell in the coffin. And, and as the dirt fell in the coffin, you, you, you just felt the pain for my, for my cousin Nancy as we all watched this dirt fall on this white coffin. It was awful. And her, but her son Edward had uh, become engaged to Becky, the love of his life, before his dad died. So not long after the funeral, there was this joy of this, this marriage of Edward and Becky at the same temple, the same Temple Wise the place where Al and he stood under the hoopah and, and broke the wine glass, and they were married. And that evening at the, at the Hilton Ballroom, there was this joyful celebration for the marriage you know, of Edward and Becky And same ballroom where Al and Nancy had their marriage celebration. Only on this night of the celebration, Nancy was alone. She was without Al. And there was joy, but we were all on pins and needles. It was pain. And we all worried how Nancy was going to hold up without Al. And Nancy's heart was broken in pieces over the loss of Al. It hadn't been that long. And my cousin Nancy, she's so strong for her son, Edward, who needed her now. And it came to time during this ballroom celebration when, when it was a time for Nancy to make a toast to the new couple. And we all held our breath and wondered whether Nancy was going to collapse. But she stood up, and she held the glass, and she said, all I got to say to the couple is, have lots of babies. <laughs> And with that, we all realize Nancy's surviving and she's coping by turning her focus from the grief of her own loss to the prospect of grandchildren. And, and, and I got a little picture in here of little Alex on my cell phone if you want to see him. And you've never seen such a kid that's more loved as Alex than anyway. you. But at the end of verse three, Naomi is surviving and she's coping with the loss of her Elimelech by turning her focus from her own personal gr- grief to the prospect of grandchildren. And those words and her two sons at the end of verse 3 show us that Naomi lost her husband, but the little word her two sons shows us Naomi may have lost her husband, but she hasn't lost her two sons. So her life is starting to get going again. And she gives herself to seeing the families of her two sons be built up. Of course, the first step to having a family is to get married. So we come in verse 4. They took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years so Naomi sees her two sons take wives, as it says, they took them wives. There's just one problem for Naomi, and that is who they took for wives. It says they took them wives of the women of Moab. Here is a real heartbreak, another heartbreak for Naomi. When it says they took them wives of the women of Moab, that's a disaster, God specifically forbid the Jewish people from taking wives of the women of Moab. And and, and Naomi watched her sons take wives of the women of Moab, and she remembers what Moses told the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, when he said, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto her son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, which is what she saw. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And in Judges 10 6, it says, The children of Israel again did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. So Naomi felt what is described about when Isaac and Rebekah, the couple, and they have the son, Esau, and Esau marries a Hittite woman. He took a wife with a woman of Hittite. And, and it says in Genesis 26, 33, 34 through 35, Genesis 34 30, 35, it says, and Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bashamoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, took two wives, which, and then it says this in verse 35, in Genesis 26, 35, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah were in a state of shock over the marriage of their son Esau to Hittite women, especially Isaac. He knew how important it was for a son to not marry someone like a Hittite or a Moabite. Isaac watched his father, Abraham, had his trusted servant Eliezer put his hand under his body and make him swear that he's not going to allow Isaac to marry someone like a Hittite or a Moabite, but that Eliezer was to go back to Abraham's people and get a wife for Isaac, which he did. That's where Rebekah came from. And so now Abraham is now gone, and the horror of Isaac and Rebekah, as they watched their own son Esau do the very thing that Abraham was dead set should not happen. He takes a wife of the Hittites. And every time that Isaac and Rebekah think about it, it becomes what the Bible describes as a grief of mind. Every time Isaac and Rebekah think about their son Esau marrying the Hittite, in their mind, they're like grieving over Esau like he's died, like they're going to his funeral. It's a grief of mind. And for Naomi, when she thinks about her two sons, that they marry women of Moab, it's too much for her to bear. It's a grief of mind. And the fact, and in fact, notice how the two wives are referred to in verse, in verse 4 when it says, wives of the women of Moab. That's a particularly painful description for Naomi to hear because that's exactly the description of the very tool that Moab, the king of Moab, used to destroy the Jewish people, almost destroy them all. Because in Numbers 22, chapters 22 through 24, the king of Moab named Balak hired a prophet, his prophet named Balaam, to destroy the Jewish people by cursing them. And you know what happened. I mean, and he tries and the donkey gets in his way and everything happens and he can't do it and he ends up blessing them. And it makes the, the, the king Balak very angry because God did not allow Balaam to curse Israel. In fact, every time he tries to curse him, he's forced to bless Israel. And Balak, the king, is just in incensed, he's so angry, and he's frustrated with Balaam because he hired him to curse Israel, and he ends up blessing him. So the end of Numbers 24, Balak, the king of Moab, so frustrated with his, his failure to destroy Israel with curses, and that's, that's how it ends, the end of Numbers 24. But the start of the next chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not good. <laughs> Numbers 25. We find Balak has finally discovered the way. Finally discovered how to destroy Israel. He finally has brought a lot of death in Israel. And his new strategy reads like this. In Israel, and Shittim, the people began to commit whoredom with the women of Moab, the daughters of Moab. There's that term. And they called the people into the sacrifices of their God. The people did eat. They bowed themselves to their God. Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. The angle of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sons, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every man as men that were joined to Bel-Peor." And there, behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation, children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas... The son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose up among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man, chased him, into the tent, thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 24,000. See, that was Balak's new strategy. He, he, that worked. It got 24,000 Jews to die. And it's described as committing whoredom with the women of Moab, the daughters of Moab, and they bowed down to their gods. And the women of Moab were the key to the destruction of so many in Israel. And that's why Israel was specifically warned about the women of Moab. So in verse 4, when it describes these wives for Naomi's son, as of the women of Noab, there's just nothing less than it is chilling. It's horror. Naomi. But what could Naomi do? There were no Jewish women in Moab for her sons to take. There weren't any there. Naomi didn't have an Eliezer that she could send back to Bethlehem Judah to bring some wives back for her sons. So she just watched in horror and fear, and she she saw what's described. They took them wives of the women of Moab. Now verse 4 now turns for a moment on these two individual wives is they're not just women of Moab, but they're individuals. There's a certain woman, there's a certain woman, and we're going to see them that way and how they, they, the spotlight turns. First of all, in verse 4, we learn that the name of one is Orpah and the name of the other is Ruth. It's interesting how the Bible brings out these words. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. Again, the Bible is emphasizing individuality of the persons, individuality of each person. That's not a Moabite. That's not a Moabite. That's Orpah. That's Ruth. And it's just like in verse 1. There's a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. There's a certain woman named Orpah. And there's a certain woman named Ruth. And they will not be broad-brushed by God as just being women of Moab. But each one has been individually highlighted by the true light that comes in to the the true light that lights every man and every woman who comes into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one, Orpah, Ruth, will turn to or will turn from that true light and their choice, as is true for everyone today, and their choice to turn to or to turn from the Lord Jesus Christ determines eternal destinies. We'll come back to their individual life uh, that they made. Now we focus on the last statement of verse 4, where it says, and they dwelled there about 10 years. Now, we're not told the exact amount of time because it doesn't matter. So we're told it's about 10 years. That's good enough for us. About 10 years. It's a long time. 10 years is a long time.
1: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God.